0: For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, the conclusion of the 8990 trip as Larry and Lisa reached their destination. I'll talk with the author of a new book about the history of railroad hospitality the Harvey Houses, and pioneering canine behaviorist Clive D.L. Wynn shares his insight into the emotional lives of dogs. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Lisa Schneble Heidinger and her father Larry Schnebley began their 89-90 trip in Prescott, Arizona, heading north. It was a journey in honor of Larry's 90th birthday when he said the only thing on his bucket list was to travel up U.S. Route 89 to the Canadian border, revisiting many places he has known since childhood along the way. It would take the Schnebleys more than 3,000 miles round trip. For Larry, that includes almost 90 years of memories.
1: U.S. 89-90 trip, day six, dateline, the end of the road. Well, we are in
2: Montana. We have been to the border. And where else have we been today?
1: Oh, north on Highway 89 and part of the way on Highway 15, which is an interstate northbound out of the United States into Canada.
2: We didn't mean to finish today. It seemed like there'd be too much ground to cover. But it was an easy pull to Great Falls, Montana. Our friend Trevor Swanson had told us about a most unexpected, non-Montana-sounding restaurant that I have looked forward to this whole time. Great in Falls. Great Falls, Montana, the Sip and Dip, which I had heard of back in Arizona, it was built in 1962 as a tiki bar and has a pool where mermaids, or women dressed as mermaids, swim. Unfortunately for us, the mermaids don't start swimming till about 6 p.m., so we were six hours too early to see them, but we did have lunch at the Sip and Dip in Great Falls, Montana.
1: It was very good, yeah.
2: Then I got us lost, which makes me feel terrible, but as is always true, Larry found some good in it. Coffee and fresh popcorn in a city he's known about for 80 years, but never expected to see.
1: Cutbank, Montana was the coldest spot in North America, frequently when I was a youngster growing up, and Cutbank, Montana, I had remembered reading about when I was in the 3rd or 4th or 5th or 6th grade. We had coffee in Bank, yeah.
2: <laughs> we kept rolling all the way to Bab, Montana. And the border was so close, just right there. So we crossed it. We crossed it. No Canadian Royal Mounted Police demanding to see our papers or anything. We didn't go very far, and it was, well, quiet. But we did it. Tell the nice people where we went today. (laughs) We
1: were in Canada today. We saw the end of Highway 89 and turned around and are now going south, and it's going to get warmer as we get lower. We're about, I don't know what we are, six or 7,000 feet high right now. It's in the high 40s, low 50s probably.
2: Now, I was asking about if there was anything like fantasy football for big bands, and if so, who you would have picked to be the apex ultimate big band, and you told me about a very interesting contest.
1: Playboy magazine was a big thing in the early 50s, and they sponsored a contest that was a poll kind of from writers, readers, that would write in to them and list their top clarinetist, top uh, alto saxophonist, etc., etc., et cetera, and comprise an 18-person big band. And I won second place in that. I got a free Playboy recording of that. I don't remember where it is now.
2: We drove to the Duck Lake Lodge near Bab which had not only a duck, and a lake, but a great restaurant where the usual Friday night crowd gathered. More music, and a couple of couples dancing, looking at each other like they were 15 instead of 50. Hi!
0: My name is Scott. Scott? Yes. How do you do that harmony thing?
3: Uh, with my foot. <laughs>
2: I've got an extra singer. Yes, I've got an extra singer in my boot. (laughs) Thank you so much. You're welcome. The music was still going when we went to bed. Now comes the slightly less fun part, heading home, completing a round trip of 3,232 miles. But Daddy and I will take different routes and see things we've not seen before, because there's always something we've not seen. Larry and I have said more than once on this trip. Adventure is when you don't know what's going to happen. It has been a grand adventure.
0: You can follow the entire journey of the 8990 trip by reading Lisa Schneble Heidinger's travel diary with photos on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Modern air travelers can usually agree on one thing, layovers are terrible. But think back to the turn of the 20th century, when the only reliable way to get anywhere in the Southwest was by railroad. These long, slow journeys put travelers at the mercy of the elements, and comfort was hard to find. In response, the first Harvey houses began appearing in the 1870s, offering fine cuisine and a comfortable place to recoup before boarding the next train. As many as 10 of these houses operated in Arizona, and some lasted until the 1960s. Author Rosa Wollston Latimer details this history in her book, Harvey Houses of Arizona, Historic Hospitality from Winslow to the Grand Canyon.
3: Traveling by rail was very difficult. Uh, And of course, the Santa Fe Railroad expanded through the southwest. They needed more passengers to help fund that. Of course, it was hot and dusty and dirty. Uh, The train uh, was fueled by steam, so it stopped about every 100 miles. But often when it stopped, there was no place to eat. If there was food, it was not good food. After the Harvey Houses, of course, it became a totally different experience. And just as the Santa Fe hoped would happen, uh, people traveled to visit the Southwest, to travel through New Mexico and Arizona and see country that they wouldn't see otherwise.
0: Do you think it was entrepreneurial spirit that created the notion of the Harvey Houses in the first place?
3: Oh, definitely. Mr. Harvey came from England. He was 15 when he came to the United States. He'd worked as a busboy in restaurants, and, and he went to the president of the Santa Fe Railway and said that he could develop these restaurants and that the service and the food would be such high quality that people would ride the train just so they could eat at a hearty house. His first restaurant opened in 1876 in Topeka, Kansas. And then Mr. Harvey died in 1901. So he started this strong foundation, but his two sons are the ones who actually developed it further.
0: Well, let's talk about one of the most famous aspects, and that is the women who worked for Fred Harvey, who became known collectively as the Harvey Girls. Now, what kind of an opportunity was this for women of that era?
3: Typically, in this era, you were a nurse or you were a schoolteacher. And, of course, Fred Harvey and the way he established his business set a standard that caused people to look at a waitress in a totally different way. To attract women to work in these Harvey houses, he ran um, classified ads in women's magazines. Uh, advertising for educated women of good character to go west to work. So women who had grown up on a farm and maybe had never been further than walking distance from home took advantage of this. My grandmother was a Harvey girl, and her first career, she was a nurse in Philadelphia, and she wanted to travel. So she went to Kansas City and had an interview, and they put her on a train to New Mexico. Starting salary for these women was $17.50 a month. Of course, their room and board was provided. So many of them sent money back home to help their families.
0: Do you think that in any way there was uh, any exploitation of these young women, who oftentimes might be rather naive about what living in the West would be like?
3: I have found nothing, and I've interviewed many Harvey girls. I have letters from Harvey girls, and I've interviewed their families. I haven't found any instances where anyone felt that these women were exploited in any way. If anything, Mr. Harvey established the principles to protect the women, protect their reputations. That's one reason for the uniforms, which were very pristine and early on, they went to the ankles and... When I do my research, I can always get, get a good guess at the decades at the length of the skirt because, of course, they got shorter as the years went on. Uh, the women were given a nice place to live. Usually it was on the second floor built into the depot above the restaurant.
0: Well, you mentioned uh, doing many interviews with uh, surviving Harvey girls and reading letters. Mm-hmm. What kind of stories do you hear about the social environment or the sense of sisterhood that was built up?
3: Oh, so many fun stories and uh sisterhood is a is a good phrase over and over again i I have been told that when you worked at a Harvey house, it was like family, and they took care of each other. I have stories of uh, a woman who was widowed and had a young child, but the local manager hired her to work at the Harvey house and Whatever Harvey girl was not on duty would help take care of her child. I make the joke that Harvey girls were not allowed to date railroad men or Harvey House employees. But evidently they could marry them because there are a lot of wedding notices about them getting married in the manager's office. So there was dating that went on. It just wasn't always above board.
0: Well, you mentioned your grandmother uh, working there, and I Mm -hmm. wonder what uh, personal stories you might have heard or mementos that were passed down to you from her.
3: I have nothing directly from her, but she's responsible for this Harvey House journey that I'm on. I was adopted before I was three years old and knew nothing about my biological family until I was a young adult. And a biological uncle sent me my family history and a family tree. And told me about my grandmother and that she was a Harvey girl and I had no idea what a Harvey girl was and she uh, was sent to Rincon, New Mexico, tiny tiny Harvey house there and that's where she met my grandfather who was a whaler from the island of Mauritius and he was walking to California. He'd gotten off of his ship in Mexico and was walking to California and stopped in New Mexico to go to work for the Santa Fe to make some money. And that's where they met, and they married three months later and spent the rest of their lives in Albuquerque.
0: My guest, Rosa Walston Latimer, talked to me from her home in Austin, Texas. Her book, Harvey Houses of Arizona, Historic Hospitality from Winslow to the Grand Canyon, is published by the History Press. It can be so easy to anthropomorphize an animal's behavior, especially the ones that we share our homes with. Trying to understand what really goes on with dogs in relation to reasoning and emotion is a primary focus for behaviorist Clive D.L. Wynne. He directs the Canine Science Collaboratory at Arizona State University, and his latest book on the subject is Dog is Love, Why
4: and How Your
0: Dog Loves You.
4: I was skeptical of what seemed to be love coming out of our dogs. And I remember my mother explained to me when I was a kid that the dog didn't really love us. This was just cupboard love. You know, this was just making it look like love so that we would take an interest and feed the dog. And I think as a scientist, I think it's part of the toolkit of the scientist is this skepticism. We're always trying to scrape below the surface of things and see how things really are. But this is one of those cases where it turns out that the surface of things and how things really are are actually identical. So we've done studies over the years now. Um, You can actually give your dog a choice, you or the food. Now, obviously, if it's you and the food, then the dog goes for the food and walks away from you. But if you set up a scenario, as we have done, where people are away from home for eight hours of the day, and then when they come home, we set up in their garage A choice, a choice. The dog who's been alone in the house for eight hours and without any food for eight hours, when the garage door opens, is suddenly confronted by a straightforward choice. There's my owner, and there's a bowl of food. And we have these very funny video recordings of how the dog reacts when it's confronted by this choice. And the dogs, time and again, they choose their owner, they go to their owner. They see the food, and you can see them see the food, and you can see them looking very puzzled by this extremely strange situation, and yet they go to their owner, at least initially, and until they have completed greeting their owner, they leave the food alone. So, as I like to say, if anything in your life loves you, your dog loves you.
0: A small factor that comes up in your research is the idea that when a dog is in the presence of its owner and is relaxed and comfortable, that that dog can show a great amount of interest in a guest, a strange person. If you have someone over to your house, everyone's experienced the idea that their animal gravitates towards the new person. Um, but that you point out that that's very uh, much a mechanism of the dog being in its comfort space with its owner. If the owner wasn't there, the dog would probably not be as friendly towards a stranger.
4: So this is called the Ainsworth Strange Situation Test, and it was developed for measuring the strength of the bond between infants and their mothers. And the mother brings the small child into an unfamiliar space and then leaves it with a stranger. Now, so long as the mother is there, the the infant is very happy to interact with the stranger. But if the mother disappears in an unfamiliar space then the child is made very anxious and doesn't want to hang out with the stranger. And this is one way that you can assess the strength of the bond between mother and child. Well, 20 years ago, some researchers in Hungary had the fantastic idea of trying this on dogs and their owners. And they actually find very, very similar results. The dogs who are together with a familiar person, with their owner, are very happy to explore strangers. And we've probably all seen that at some time or another. I see it every time a UPS guy comes to our front door or we need a plumber or an electrician. So long as I'm there, my dog loves all these people. But if she's on her own, then she gets extremely anxious if a stranger approaches the house. Uh, So this this is one of the many ways that we can see that our dogs have a bond with us that is very similar in strength and nature to the bond that small children have with their mothers. It's really powerful, and it's more than just some kind of interest in us because we feed them just as you did just now in our conversation,
0: you do often in the book, you look at the research and the body of scientific knowledge, but then you draw a connection to your own experience with your own beautiful dog, Zephos. How is it that she became such an important part of the book, Dog is Love?
4: Well, Mark, I say in in the book, Dog is Love, I say, you know, Zephos is the book's spirit animal. And she really, she really is. And she was such a Catalyst. You see, I had been studying dog behavior for several years without actually having a dog of my own at home for a variety of reasons. But then there came a point where we were ready and really hungry to have a dog in our lives. And as it happens, that occurred at a point where I was kind of like in a, in a sort of intellectual wilderness in my attempt to understand what makes dogs special and why and how dogs could be so successful in the world today and there had been several scientists who proposed that dogs during the process of evolution to domestication to from wolves to dogs the dogs had developed special forms of intelligence that they had special skills in understanding people intellectual skills and i had reached a stage where i could no longer believe that Now, I know there are smart dogs out there, but I couldn't believe that it was intelligence had given dogs the ability to be so successful around people. And it was at that point that Zephos came into our lives. And Zephos, you know, I love her to pieces, but nobody would call her a smart dog. I mean, by anybody's definition of intelligence in dogs, she is not a smart dog. But my goodness, is she affectionate. Her affection, it's it's everything about her. If you were to see her with me, you would see it in her. How she would react towards you, Mark, if you came and visited us. I mean, it's everything about her is this desire to be friends, to be in a close emotional bond with people. And so she actually taught me what what I now have as a scientific position, which I can see in scientific studies from every level of analysis, from the relatively easy-to-do behavioral studies that my students and I and many other people do, through to the kinds of science that require real high-tech equipment and get into the biology of the dog and look at the dog's hormones and look at the dog's brain activity and even right down to the deepest level of biology into the genetic code. And we see at all of these levels of analysis we see how it's this capacity, this desire for strong, affectionate, emotional connections that drives dogs. And I'm convinced is, is the secret of their success in human society. That's, that's why we want them. It's because we recognize that they love us. And this is a very, a very rich thing to have in our lives. You mentioned behavioral studies, and and one of the most
0: famous by far, one that many people who have never cracked a book on animal behavior would understand the principle behind Pavlov's dog. In doing research for this book, tell us what you found out and how maybe your perception of that series of behavioral
4: experiments and the man himself have changed. What Pavlov did is always described to our students in ways that makes it sound awfully technical and hard to grasp, but actually the principle is extremely simple. What he was showing was that dogs respond to signals that predict that something important is about to happen. So in his experiments, he made a sound, and the sound was followed by food. And he quickly showed that the dogs could tell that the sound was a signal that they were about to be fed. They drooled. They did a variety of other things. And that basic capacity, which has been found in every single animal that has been tested for, including, of course, our own species, we can detect signals in the world around us, That basic capacity can underlie a great many much more complex-seeming behaviors. That's certainly true. But it turns out that Pavlov himself recognized that there was a lot more to dog behavior than that simple observation. And although it's taken historians a very long time to actually get around to looking into Pavlov and his life and his views and so on, we now recognize that Pavlov actually knew that every one of his dogs had a distinct personality— And he knew that the dogs were fond of him and fond of the research workers, and and he and the research workers were quite fond of the dogs. For his birthday, his students all got together and gave him a picture book with photographs of every dog that was in the lab at that time with the dog's name carefully written underneath and a few notes about the dog's. Personality. So even Pavlov, who we think of as having this kind of mechanistic, machine-like view of dogs, he actually recognized that they have personalities and that they have affections for people.
0: Yeah. Well, what about reading emotion on a dog's face? Because I see dogs that certainly look like they're smiling to me. And sometimes I wonder, is that a learned behavior? Have dogs mimicked humans smiling? Because when a dog bears its teeth, it means something very different than when a dog is expressing that sort of relaxed yet
4: upturned uh, lip
0: position. So talk to us a little bit about reading emotions on a dog's
4: face. Well right Mark I mean we as human beings we express so much of our emotions on our face we look to each other's faces to see our our emotions and we naturally transplant that to other animals now in dogs dogs faces don't have anything like the same flexibility capacity to express emotions as our own faces because the presence of fur hides a lot of you know small detailed movements in the face the issue as is to dogs smiling is a little bit controversial. There certainly are experts out there whose opinions I respect who who believe that they do see a smile, a relaxed, open-mouth posture in a dog's face. Personally, I'm not quite so sure, and I have been watching Zephos' face to see what I think about this. And I have to say that here in Arizona, it seems to me if her mouth is open, it's mainly because she's panting to lose heat she's trying to control her temperature and i'm not so sure that she has that much option to open her mouth as a sort of a smile gesture a recent paper came out too recently for me to get into my book dog is love showed that dogs have evolved uh, control of a muscle above the eyebrow that wolves cannot control so that dogs can express more with their eyebrows than wolves can. And I certainly have noticed this kind of quizzical look that dogs can adopt with their eyebrows, which is quite human looking, um, we don't see in wolves. But Mark, what I would draw attention to is this. We and dogs are a long way apart on the evolutionary bush, right? We are primates, they are carnivores, we're not at all closely related. And yet when a person and a dog get together, there's abundant evidence from science and from everyday experience that we read each other's emotions, we care about each other, or we make it our business to understand each other's expressions, even though they, it's not overlapping in, in, in many ways. There are many distinct ways that we and the dogs express emotions. So to me, that's the really interesting thing to draw attention to. That's the more or less miraculous thing, right? When you stop and think about it, it's an everyday miracle that you know what your dog's wagging tail means. In writing the book, Dog is Love, where did it take you, maybe
0: an unexpected place, that uh, changed your perception of the man-canine relationship?
4: Forcing myself to do all the research that I needed to do to be able to make a whole book out of it really brought home to me that the bond of affection is the core and the essence of the human-dog relationship, and that that's something we must carry with us whenever we're interacting with dogs as dog owners at home, We should be careful about not leaving our dogs alone for too long in the day. My students and I put a lot of effort into trying to help dogs in shelters find homes. And there, too, the difficulty that dogs living in shelters have, that they're in kennels, uh, often only seeing people for a few minutes a day, it really brings to the fore, for me, the importance of finding time for our dogs. Don't, if, you, if you love your dog, don't go out buying fancy food and fancy treats and whatever else. Find time. Find quality time for your dog.
0: I spoke with Clive D.L. Wynn, the author of Dog is Love, Why and How Your Dog Loves You. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.